Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest foxcasting either side of the breach. Death is everywhere in Malifaux, and most of its inhabitants, human and otherwise, spend considerable time and effort avoiding the many ways that there are to die. But some people see death differently. Tonight, we have the story of one such individual. I hope you enjoy part one of Common Ground, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by Uncle Ernie's Back Alley Exorcisms. If you can't afford the high prices that licensed skilled exorcists demand, come to Uncle Ernie's in the quarantine zone. We banish evil spirits, demonic possession, and malevolent infestations of all kinds. We guarantee 100% success or your money back. And we are proud to say that a full 3% of our clients survive the ordeal. Common Ground by Christopher Gorham Vincent held his symbol of office, turning it over in his hands. In the flickering light of the carriage's interior, he examined the ram's pitted, tarnished surface. He recalled how brightly the brass had shone on the day the late Governor-General had presented it to him all those years ago. He hadn't polished it in months. As the carriage lurched to a halt, the symbol slipped through his fingers and clattered across the floor. Cursing, Vincent snatched up the ornate crossbow that lay across his lap and scrambled to retrieve it. He was still on his hands and knees when the driver, in crisp guard uniform, opened the door. "'All right, sir?' the young woman inquired, peering in an air of studied boredom to see what he was doing. "'Yes,' he snapped, looping the ram's chain over his head and tucking it into his shirt. "'Out of the way.' The driver obligingly stood back making a sweeping gesture to indicate his freedom to pass. As Vincent stepped down to the cobbled street, a gust of icy wind whipped at his cloak and threatened to dislodge the driver's hat. She clamped it down with one hand while she fastened the door and raised her voice over the gale. Are you sure you don't want me to stay, sir? There's a big storm coming, and you'll have a damnable time trying to get back to your lodgings. I'll manage, Vincent grunted. The driver gave him a curt nod, and scrambled up to her seat without another word. One flick of the reins and the carriage was moving, the horses surging and prancing skittishly as the driver tried to keep them calm. Vincent hooked his crossbow securely to his belt and drew his cloak over its dependable bulk. Only once the carriage was out of sight did he allow himself to start shivering. The building that stood before him had an edifice of forbidding grey stone, more akin to a medieval castle than a townhouse. Ram-headed gargoyles stared from the parapet, 
poised as if to swoop down on unwelcome visitors. Vincent approached the iron-banded door and rapped the knocker sharply. Almost immediately the door swung open, and a tall, powerfully built man in butler's livery ushered Vincent inside. The vestibule was surprisingly warm and lavish, after the building's austere façade, with rich cherry-wood panelling and ornately framed portraits on the walls. Vincent waved the servant off as the man attempted to take his cloak. "'Captain Cortinus will see you at once,' he rumbled, leading Vincent into a well-furnished sitting-room. A man and woman were already present, and they rose as Vincent entered. "'Exorcist Vincent St. Clair,' the butler announced before withdrawing. Vincent made an instinctive inspection of the pair, husband and wife, he assumed. They were both of a similar age, likely in their mid-sixties. The man was tall and thin, with horn-rimmed spectacles and a slight stoop, more suggestive of an accountant than a military officer. The woman was stockier, shorter, with a straight-shouldered bearing and the air of confidence that came from years in a position of command. He offered his hand to her and was sure he saw a slight nod of approval. Thank you for coming, exorcist, the retired captain began, shaking his hand firmly. You must be wondering why we asked his secretary to send someone of your occupation. I'm not accustomed to making house calls, Vincent growled. People don't usually invite me in. The captain's husband gave a bark of laughter, but immediately fell silent when he saw Vincent's stony-faced expression and began intently studying the carved scrollwork on the nearby mantelpiece. Yes, I'm sure. Captain Cortinus agreed. Exorcist, this is a delicate and private matter. I specifically requested someone discreet, diligent, and loyal. Are you up to the task? Vincent narrowed his eyes. What task? he demanded. The captain's frown was fierce, and he was sure she'd once been a truly formidable woman. But age, and perhaps whatever burden he'd been sent to alleviate, had taken its toll on her. After a few seconds, she deflated slightly. Perhaps you'd better see for yourself. The two of them shepherded Vincent up through the corridors and narrow staircases of the house, and paused on the highest landing. Through a narrow window, Vincent looked out over rooftops and up to the thick clouds that hung low over the city, churning and black. The air was tense. Please understand, Mr. Cortina spoke for the first time, wringing his hands, that the woman you're about to see is our daughter, Riva. Her condition is... We didn't want... He took a breath and tried again. This is the best we could do under the circumstances. Ever since becoming an adult, she's been... different. Behaving in ways not be... She's possessed, the captain cut in. The physicians say she's insane, and they've subjected her to every treatment their horrible little minds can dream up, she continued, her face taut with anger. But nothing works. She was always a difficult girl, but now she's not even our daughter anymore. Who is she then? Captain Cortinas picked up a lantern that hung beside the door, adjusted the wick, and lit it with a match, ignoring Vincent's question. We try to keep her room dark, she explained. She's quieter in the dark. She slid back the heavy bolts that secured the door and stepped through. Lantern held high. It took Vincent's eyes a few seconds to adjust to the dim light. The captain and her husband were already moving ahead. As he followed, his shin struck a wooden crate in the darkness and he swore. Hearing his misfortune, the captain turned to light his way, 
As she did, Vincent saw boxes of all sizes lining the walls and spilling out across the floor. The attic, he thought, and couldn't help adding, where we keep the things we don't want. Pushed up against the far wall, where the captain stood with the lantern, was a bed with a heavy cast iron frame. On it, or rather, Vincent realized as he approached, strapped to it with thick leather belts, lay the body of a woman, somewhere in her late twenties, clad only in a nightdress. He took the lantern from the captain to examine her. Her wrists and ankles were raw and bruised from struggling against her bonds. Her hair was shaved close to her scalp, and rose-coloured burn marks showed at her temples. Just above her left ear, a row of small, round wounds showed where, Vincent suspected, someone had repeatedly drilled through her skull in the name of medicine. Her eyes were open and stared blankly, not responding to the light. She was shivering. She must be freezing, Vincent frowned. Why haven't you given her any blankets? Mr. Cortinas looked away. We had to take them away, he said quietly. She tried to strangle herself with them. And yet you called in an exorcist, Vincent mused. The pieces of this puzzle were starting to come together, and he didn't like the image that they formed. And why are you keeping her up here? All those stairs can't be easy for people your age. You don't know what you're talking about, the captain snapped. She speaks to no one. She wanders through the graveyard. And you haven't had to listen to her screaming at night. We have to keep her up here just so we can get things done. So we can sleep at night. Do you know what it's like to listen to someone scream for hours on end? Vincent regarded her, his expression grim. Yes, he answered flatly. Captain... Are you aware of what an exorcism entails? Whether she is possessed or not, if she undergoes the trials, she will almost certainly die. So few survive. The captain and her husband exchanged a glance that to Vincent's eye looked somewhat furtive and guilty. They nodded. And yet, Vincent continued, you were so concerned for her safety that you thought it better for her to suffer in the cold. You were so disturbed by her suffering that you thought it better she do it alone in the dark. You've kept her here in the house in secret rather than have her cared for in a sanitarium. The couple shared an expression of dawning outrage, but his anger was mounting and he couldn't stop himself. Insanity and suicide are so embarrassing, aren't they? A stain on the family cloth. But possession, evil spirits, resurrectionist plots, well, bad things happen to good people all the time in Malifaux. Very tragic. Couldn't be helped. So why not do what you can to protect your propriety? He spat the word. At the mere expense of your daughter's life. He began angrily unfastening the bed straps with one hand, the lantern in the other. Stand down, the captain ordered, drawing herself up. This is treason. Stop now and your crime will remain a secret. Vincent looked down at the woman on the bed, her eyes unblinking. 
moved and locked his gaze. No, Vincent said quietly. I've seen how you keep your secrets. He hoisted the woman's body over his shoulder and headed for the door. Captain Cortinas tried to bar his way, but he sent her sprawling over a pile of boxes. On the landing, he looked back for a moment at the couple's furious, terrified faces, then closed the door and slid the bolts into place. Ignoring their muffled shouting and thumping, he extinguished the lantern and hung it back on its hook. With Reaver cradled in his arms, he began the long climb down the stairs. At the last step, he froze. A deep ache was burning in his legs, and they were on the verge of giving out. But he forced himself to remain still, to show no weakness. He put on his deepest scowl and growled, Out of my way. The butler regarded him impassively, a heavy felling axe held casually in one massive fist. Slowly, the man stepped aside and set the weapon down. Vincent stepped warily onto the landing. I had anticipated that going a different way. What happens now? Vincent asked. I think you overpower me and steal a horse. The man gestured toward the rear door. There is one already saddled in the courtyard outside. I thought I might need to leave on short notice. He almost looked sheepish. He cares for her, Vincent realized. Do you think they'll believe I took you down? Vincent cast a look over the bulging muscles under the butler's starched uniform. He had to crane his neck to look the man in the eye. I'm sure you are very capable, sir, but perhaps you caught me by surprise. The butler grinned. Vincent rode hard through the abandoned, storm-lashed streets of the city. Reva shivered against his chest. He'd wrapped her in his cloak, but they were both soaked to the skin, and the temperature was still dropping. At least nobody would be out looking for them in this weather. As long as they didn't die of exposure, they would be one step ahead of any pursuers. They were heading as best as Vincent could navigate, away from the guild seat of power and into the city's slums. Guard patrols would be minimal in this weather and he was sure they could safely hide for at least a few days while he planned his next move. He felt slightly sick at the thought of what he'd done. His former life was over, that was certain, and if the long arm of the guild caught hold of him, his new life would be as well. He couldn't fully explain why he'd felt so compelled to rescue this woman. He'd seen people suffer, hell, he'd made people suffer far worse torments than hers, and not felt the wrenching sense of injustice that had overtaken him tonight. Reva stirred, and seemed to be trying to talk to him. The little he could make out over the sound of the wind was foreign to him, possibly a sign that she was delirious. Her babbling soon dissolved into a fit of coughing. He had to find somewhere warm. They were long past the last guard post now. Ramshackle buildings loomed close over streets littered with detritus, and occasionally, vague forms that Vincent was quite certain were human bodies sleeping or dead under piles of wet blankets and soggy rubbish. A painted sign caught his eye, the twisted snakes of a physician's caduceus. He reined in the horse and dismounted, trying not to jolt Reva too badly in the process. He hoped that the horse would find its own shelter, 
If it ran off, that might mislead any pursuers. With Reaver in his arms, he gave the door a few kicks with the toe of his boot and waited. Just as he was about to kick it again, it swung open. Without waiting for an invitation, he pushed his way inside. There was a fire, and right now that seemed like the only thing in the world that mattered. Vincent hurried to the fireplace. Behind him, he vaguely noted a voice saying, Oh, come right on in, why don't you? And the door being secured against the weather. He laid Reaver down as gently as possible on the floor near the fire, spotted a threadbare old armchair and collapsed gratefully into it. A tap on his shoulder startled him, and he twisted around to see a small, middle-aged woman in a plain shirt and trousers, with one eyebrow cocked. You're in my chair. Get up, she instructed, pointing at a simple wooden stool next to the fireplace, and sit there. Put your back to the fire. Come on. Her hands made shooing gestures. Vincent forced his protesting body to move. The seat was uncomfortable, but he was closer to the fire. The woman, the clinic's doctor, he realized belatedly, pushed a grimy glass of something that almost smelled like whiskey into his hands. Drink. He tossed it back in a single gulp, feeling warmth spread through his chest. The doctor sank into her armchair, grimacing slightly at its dampness, and took a sip from her own glass. So what were you thinking going out on a night like this? She asked, and a crash of thunder rattled the windows as if on cue. If she's got consumption, there's sod all I can do for her. She might as well have died at home, and you could both have stayed dry. Vincent had been starting to feel warm and a little fuzzy around the edges, but one word hit him like a bucket of icy water. Consumption? The woman frowned. You're not from around here, are you? Boy, did you end up in the wrong part of town. They haven't relegated us to the grave just yet, but... With one finger, she made a tick-tock motion. Vincent tried to stand, a rising panic threatening to overwhelm him. We have to... No, the doctor said sharply. She's not going anywhere. You can take your chances with a storm if you want, but you brought her to me, and that makes her my patient. Maybe your friend will die, she shrugged, but maybe she won't. You take the hand that fate deals you. But, she prodded a bony accusing finger into Vincent's chest, pushing him back down onto his stool. If you take her out in the sleet again, she'll be dead by morning. She stays. Vincent started awake in the early morning gloom, crossbow in hand and half-cocked before his brain caught up. Unfamiliar surroundings, but no obvious threat. Just a makeshift hospital ward and early morning light streaming through the small high windows. He lurched to his feet, stiff and sore from sleeping on the cold floor. Reva's bed was empty. She'd been near catatonic when he'd brought her in. Was it possible she'd left on her own accord? Rubbing his eyes, he spotted a shape in his familiar dusty black cloak, bending over a cot in the far corner, as if the whisper in the occupant's ear. He hurried past the ranks of wheezing, gurgling patients and tried to ignore the nagging realization that many of the bodies in the beds were perfectly silent and still. As he approached, he drew in a deep breath. The old man on the cot produced a long, rattling sigh, and his withered chest did not rise again. Reva shook once, and her back straightened a little more. 
As Vincent came up alongside the bed, he saw the man's face, creased and tense with pain, relax into something like a peaceful smile. Reva collected herself, color seeming to come back into her cheeks. Reva, he ventured, hesitant to break the moment. Yes, she agreed, her attention focused on something beyond his perception. I'm afraid I didn't catch your name. St. Clair, he answered automatically, then corrected. Vincent, how are you feeling? Idly, she rubbed one of her bruised wrists. Like I have awoken from a very long sleep. She mused, then added wistfully, I dreamed that we rode a horse. He nodded. Do you know where we are? An antechamber. A place where the dying gather to prepare for the next stage of their journey. She smiled as she carefully folded the old man's arms over his chest. This one has just departed. It's... Vincent began to correct her, but faltered as he took in the sallow, pinched features and laboured breathing of the men and women still alive around them. None of these people were ever going home. If they even had homes. Yeah, I guess that's pretty much right. He looked back to her, and she matched his gaze. He was used to people avoiding his gaze, or spitting defiantly in his face. But her look of distant curiosity was something new. She didn't hate him or fear him. She was simply waiting to see what he would do next. Reva, I saw this man die, he said carefully. Did you kill him somehow? He paused, uncertain what he would do if she had. I know he was suffering, but... She held up a slender hand and he fell silent. It was his time, she stated gently, as if lecturing a child. He was confused and afraid and couldn't find his way onward. I guided him to the veil and he passed through it. She cocked her head to one side, a faint smile teasing her lips. So you tell me. While he was still searching for a response, she patted his arm and turned away, weaving between the beds towards one of the other patients. Bit of an odd one, isn't she? said a voice over Vincent's shoulder, breaking his reverie. He whirled to see the doctor, her nose and mouth covered by blood-spattered rag, eyebrows waggling expressively in Reva's direction. Looks a damn sight healthier than she did when you brought her in last night. That makes a nice change. She's... I think... Vincent shook his head and stepped aside, gesturing at the bed. This man died, he finished lamely. Oh... Old Paul's finally popped his clogs, has he? Poor bastard. The physician bustled forward, wiping her hands on her grimy apron and checking for a pulse. Her eyebrows raised a notch when she saw the peaceful expression on the dead man's face. Blimey, I've known this grim old stick for years, and I've never seen him look so happy. What the heck did she do to him? Vincent shrugged helplessly and started planning where they might go after this woman inevitably threw them out on the street. Well, whatever it was, the doctor said, fixing him with a steely eye, tell her to keep doing it. My medical supplies are stretched so thin, there's barely anything I can do to help make them comfortable. 
She waved her hands in a gesture encompassing the clinic, the neighbourhood, the whole slum. Do you know how long it's been since anyone round here died with a smile on their face? After two weeks, Vincent was starting to relax. Neither of them showed any symptoms of consumption, and Reva was recovering much more quickly than Vincent had expected. The Guild had set up a quarantine blockade, which was actually working in their favour. It would be impossible for them to leave the district undetected, but by the same token, none of the guard would enter it to search for them. They had stayed on at the clinic, after Dr. Gaskell gruffly admitted that she could use the extra help to keep the place running. Word of Reva's ability to ease the suffering of the dying had spread, and they were overwhelmed with people seeking ministrations for their loved ones from the Lady of Mercy. Reva had taken to wearing a white linen scarf wrapped around her head, hiding her cropped hair and scars. Vincent wasn't sure if this was vanity, modesty, or mere practicality against the cold weather, but the effect, in combination with the black cloak that she had refused to return to him, insisting it gave her strength, was striking and distinctive. Everywhere she went, people stopped her in the street to press what meagre gifts they could afford into her hands. Bread, bolts of rough cloth, a few small coins and tiny trinkets carved from wood. Those making the offerings were themselves starving and ragged, and Reva always graciously refused the food, clothing and money, but she adored the tiny carvings. Between the sickness, the quarantine and the storm, this area of the slums was in total disarray. People had lost their families, their homes, and the scant livelihoods that maintained their sparse existence in one of the poorest areas of the city. Some were left with nothing to live for, and one by one those unfortunates eventually found their way to Riva. Most of these lost souls simply sought a merciful end to their meaningless lives, but Riva instead gave them useful work to complete. They helped in the clinic, cleared detritus from the streets and alleys, distributed food and clothing, and rebuilt homes from salvaged materials. Their duties were hard, but the satisfaction of making a tangible difference transformed and revitalized them, giving them new purpose. The group followed Reva's guidance with a zealous adoration that Vincent found unnerving. While Reva was having an undeniably positive effect on the area, Vincent still questioned her ability to make the dying pass into eternity peacefully. Was she simply a peaceful, steady presence for them to latch onto, or was it something deeper, something darker? Vincent was accompanying Reva back to the clinic one evening, when a male figure swaddled in rags lurched into the alleyway ahead of them. In a split second, his years of training took over, and with an instinctually smooth motion, he unlimbered, cocked, loaded, and braced his crossbow. As he fired, Reva slammed her shoulder into his elbow, and the bolt went high, hissing just over the man's head with no visible reaction. Reva, Vincent hissed, that's a zombie. Don't panic, just stay behind me, I'll destroy it. Reva scowled at him. You will not. It was a person once, and it maintains some semblance of that now. When people come to us for help, we do not kill them. We help them. You don't understand, Reva. That's not a person. It's just a mindless thing. 
It's nothing but a twisted puppet for some resurrectionist. We can't help it other than to end it. You need to... He faltered, seeing true anger flash in Reva's eyes for the first time since they'd met. You don't know anything about the unliving, Vincent. Her statement seemed so outrageous that he spluttered and began to launch into a tirade on the countless monsters he'd destroyed and the ways it could be done. But she held up a hand for silence. Fine, you know how to kill them. That doesn't mean you understand them. Stay here. She turned and walked toward the waiting creature. He couldn't risk shooting past her, so he would have to use his knife. He judged the distance between them. It shouldn't take more than three seconds to close the gap, and he hoped it would be quick enough. As soon as it attacked, the corpse slowly raised its arms in a gesture of supplication as Reaver approached. She took its emaciated, grey-skinned hands in her own and held them. It stared at her with milky eyes, slack-jawed and moaning softly. Vincent slowly drew his blade. Ignore him, Reva soothed. He won't hurt you. Tell me what troubles you. The creature couldn't speak, so what followed was quite confusing to Vincent. It made a series of slow, awkward hand gestures, moaning and wheezing the whole time. Reva nodded, and at one point burst into laughter. As the zombie returned to stillness, she asked, Are there more like you? Hiding? Slowly, solemnly, the corpse nodded its head and held up a finger. One of its teeth fell from its mouth and skittered across the cobbles. I want you to bring him to me. The clinic on Archer Street, do you know it? Good. Don't worry, she placated, squeezing the man's bony hand. It will be all right. She waved Vincent closer, and he approached cautiously. The thing turned its misshapen head to stare at him. You see? Reva smiled. He means no harm. He is trapped and looking for a place. For a family. Vincent blinked. It wants a family? Reva gave a half-amused, half-exasperated shake of her head. Everyone wants a family, Vincent. We all want to belong somewhere in this life or the next. Let's go, she added. We should probably prepare before the unliving show up at the door. Wait, you've invited zombies to our house? Vincent squawked. But Reva was already striding ahead. He carefully navigated around the corpse, its head swiveling to follow his progress. If you come to eat our flesh, he muttered, holding up the knife, I'll make sure to bury this deep in your rotten brain, got it? The creature started to lift one arm, and Vincent dodged back and retreated down the alley. Rounding the corner after Reva, he looked back to see the man still standing in place, a cadaverous hand upraised toward him in an unmistakably rude gesture. Thank <laughs> you.
That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for the conclusion of Common Ground. <laughs>